Well, good morning, everyone. It's, uh, it's great to be back, but what a marvelous experience last week was. Uh, just the, the experience of having one testimony after another wash over us, a reminder that when everything else in the world feels like it's spiraling out of control, God is still active in the lives of his people. It was uh, just an oasis for me, and I hope for you as well. But this morning we return to our study through some of the tough questions, the controversial questions that face followers of Jesus in today's world. We've called them the great questions because it's great to be able to ask them and great to be able to wrestle with them. And the tough question for today is how followers of Jesus relate to people of other faiths. Let me begin this morning by by making reference to a book, and some of you, if you have your notes with you or want to uh, uh, to turn to them online, uh, some of you will find the listing in here, a book that was written in the year 1788 by an English poet, a man named William Blake. He titled his book, All Religions Are One. It was a landmark publication because it was the first time, at least in print, that the idea was put forward, an idea that has become very, very popular in society, that really all religions say the same thing. They're all roads to the same place. That's not the question for today, but I want you to keep it in the back of your mind. And as you keep it in the back of your mind, I, I want to offer a parallel observation from a professor of religion, a man named Stephen Porthero, who says that this is kind of an odd claim, because it's a claim that we don't make in many other spheres of, of human thought, in politics, in economics, in education. We think about systems of government. There are many different ones out there. But we don't say that democracy is the same as fascism. They're vastly different. In fact, history has probably shown one to be far healthier, though not perfect, than the other. Capitalism is not the same as communism. They are vastly different, though they are both systems of economics. And again, history has shown that, that one, flawed as it is, tends to have been better or healthier than the other. Oxford is not the same as Harvard in the realm of education, and I couldn't have gotten into either one, but... When it comes to the subject of religion, people have no idea swallowing this kind of absurd idea that all faiths are really saying the same thing. If you were to ask the proponent of any one of those faiths, I expect you would receive a challenge back saying, no, that's, that's presumptuous to say that about what we believe or about what anybody else believes. But maybe we would roll back the calendar a little bit and we'd say that in olden days, when people weren't exposed to a lot of different religious ideas, when the world was small and people led more insular lives, that it might be possible to think that their religion was the only right one. But we live in a world that's vastly different. Right? We know people. We know intelligent people. We work with them. We live beside them. Intelligent people who hold religious viewpoints that are very different from our own. In that kind of environment, wouldn't it be arrogant to say that what we believe is right? Uh, there was a, 
a Christian philosopher. There is a Christian philosopher still living, a man named Alvin Plantiga. He was born to a Dutch Christian family in Michigan. He was a teacher. He loved the classroom. And he recounts a story of one day in the classroom, one of his students challenged him and said, Dr. Plantiga, you realize, of course, that if you had been born in Morocco and not in Michigan, you would probably be a Muslim and not a Christian. That's why... I'm an agnostic, he said, because what you believe is just a byproduct of where you were born. And Platigo paused a little bit and he said, but you realize, of course, that if you had born, been born in Morocco, not in Michigan, you'd be a Muslim and not an agnostic. So the point is, and it's worth observing, that, that where we were born has a dramatic impact on what we believe. But that alone is not an excuse to wrestle with the deeper question of where truth lies. One of the questions that's really worth asking at the beginning of this whole conversation is, do you want a particular faith to be true? What you believe the bedrock of your life, your belief in Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, in one God, a loving creator, author of all life, sustainer of all that is, do you want it to be true? And if wanting it be, to be true means that other things can't be equally true, do you still want that? Before you answer that question too quickly, I think one of the changes that we have to be honest about in our society is that many people struggle with that very desire. That if they hold their beliefs to be true, it means that other people are wrong. And and that is somehow going to lead to feelings of arrogance or superiority. After all, isn't that the cause of all the religious violence, the crusades, the inquisitions, the, the acts of terrorism that go on in the world today? Not just that we're right, but they're wrong, and in their wrongness, they need to, be, need to be met with force and sometimes even violent force. You can't miss, those of you who are active on, on social media, the stream of videos that seem to go viral every month, these religious and ethically motivated tirades against people of different backgrounds. So what I'd like to do today in our message is see if we can't find a way undercut some of those currents of division. We're not going to talk so much about what makes Christianity different from other religions, though that would be a great talk. I feel like that's ground we have covered before a number of times, and I know we're going to cover it again. Nor do I suggest that we need to back away from the claim that Jesus made, saying, I am the truth, I am the way, I am the life. So I'm not suggesting that, that we abandon the claim that, that there is something at the core of what we believe as followers of Jesus that is absolutely true. Instead, what I want to look at is the issue, issue of posture. What does following Jesus mean in a vastly multicultural city or region like the GTA? What is the posture of those 
who follow Jesus as we relate to people of other faiths. And as we do that, I want to draw your attention again to one of the scripture verses that we were looking at last week. In fact, this is a great verse to call ourselves back to when we wrestle with all of these really thorny, contentious questions. This is 1 Peter 3, verse 15 where it says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give you a reason for the hope that you have. Don't, don't back off from truth. Uh, don't neglect the hard work of knowing what you believe and why you believe it. But this too is key. This is the question of posture. When you do that, do it with, what are the two words? Gentleness and respect. What I thought I'd do today is, is take two stories from the Bible and contrast them. The first is from the Old Testament, and the second is the story that Nicole read, the story of Saul. We're going to look at the story of Saul and how the way that he treated people evolved, what it looked like before he met Jesus, what it looked like after he met Jesus. But we're going to start first in the Old Testament. If you have your Bible with you, if you want to open with me, we're going to be in Numbers, chapters 22 through 25. Now that's a broad swath of verses. So I'm going to sort of summarize what's happening here in these verses, and you can follow along. In the book of Numbers, you find the nation of Israel sort of poised right there on the edge of the promised land. They're, they're about to enter this place that had been the land of their hopes and dreams for a long time. There's one last obstacle, one final enemy, and that's the king of Midian. The king of Midian, he bribes a soothsayer, a man named Balaam. He bribes him to curse Israel. And so we find in Numbers 22, the story of Balaam. We pick it up as he's riding his donkey on the way to do exactly what the king has asked and bribed him to do. And while he's making his way towards the gathered people of Israel, the Lord blocks his path. Now, Balaam himself can't see the blockade, but his donkey sees it. His donkey stops in his tracks. And when Balaam Balaam starts beating his donkey, get this. His donkey speaks. (laughs) It's a comical story, right? Why are you beating me, the donkey says. Balaam says, because you're making a fool out of me. The donkey says, am I not your very own donkey? Don't make a habit of doing this sort of thing. And Balaam says, well, you've got a good point. But I mean, this is a comical story. But it's also... A story about God's will intervening to prevent this outcome. That was plan A that the king of Midian had. He was going to send a soothsayer to curse Israel and then watch from afar as the curse took route and the nation withered from within. Plan B is where the story gets really dark. Plan B is to force a large group of subjugated Midianite women into these promiscuous sexual relationships with Israelite men. In doing that, he knew he would make those men unfaithful to their God, unfaithful to their wives, and practicers of a kind of pagan idolatry that would just kind of, it would be like a cancer growing up in the middle of the heart of Israel. 
You realize for, for Israel, and this is why it occurs again and again on the lips of prophets throughout the Old Testament. For Israel, idolatry was the ultimate spiritual and moral sinkhole. The prophets, they cried out again and again against idolatry. Not just because it was practicing another religion. Not just because the idols were false. But because those idols didn't demand justice for the poor or fidelity to your spouse or concern for widows or refugees or parental care for children. Idolatry meant trying to use a spiritual power without any spiritual or moral accountability or any concern for justice. And it always ends up enslaving the idolaters. And that meant for the practitioners of idolatry, superstition. In the ancient world, it often involved temple prostitution, particularly for women sometimes infant sacrifice, terrible things. For Israel, idolatry would mean abandoning the central truth of who they were. That there was one great God, and only one, and that he was good. For them, it meant spiritual and national and missional suicide. The very lowest point of this whole sordid tale of, of the king's plan to, uh, to erode the nation of Israel from within. It happened when, when that, uh, that infiltration of destructive relationships reached a spike point. And, uh, and one, of the, one of the Israelite men was so brazen that he took his Midianite idolatrous girlfriend into his tent in full view of Moses, who was watching. And that did it. Something snapped in the mind of a priest named Phineas. And Phineas grabbed his spear, ran into the tent, caught the two of them in the middle of the act, and killed them with a single blow as he ran them through. It's dark, it's violent. The ancient world was a violent place, and it was a violent act. In the story, as it was read and as it was preserved by Israel, it was Phineas who opposed idolatry, who was depicted as the hero of the story. And the key word used to describe him, it's used three times, is the word zeal. Numbers 25.11, he had zeal for the Lord. That word zeal takes on a life of its own. In a way, this message this morning is really about zeal, about that, that one little word. Centuries later, centuries after Phineas, around 200 years before Jesus is born, Israel is being oppressed by another foreign king, a Syrian king, a man who took as his own name the title Antiochus Epiphanes, Epiphany means a divine manifestation. God breathed out onto earth. This is a king who didn't lack any self-esteem, right? He had killed countless Jewish people. He desecrated the temple of their God. He turned it into a pagan temple for Zeus. He defiled it by taking a pig. You remember how Israel felt about pigs. And sacrificing it on the, on the altar in the center of the, of the Jerusalem temple, the Holy of Holies. He demanded that Israel betray their God, and a lot of Israel went along. 
But there was one man who stood in defiance, a man whose name was Judas Maccabeus, literally Judas the hammer. Judas picked up a spear, led a rebellion, and against all odds, he defeated Antiochus and set Israel free, and that freedom lasted for over a hundred years. By the way, if, if you've heard of the Jewish festival of Hanukkah, the festival of lights, this is the event that that Hanukkah commemorates. The battles told in the book of Maccabees. It's a book that, that Saul would have known and studied and, and revered. Judas Maccabeus, like Phineas before him, had zeal. And like Phineas, he took a spear because he had the zeal in the Lord's name to fight and to kill. All of this, by the way, is leading to a moment when the understanding of God and, and other faiths and followers of Jesus and intolerance and violence, it, it all somehow gets flipped upside down. And here's where, where it really happens. Fast forward another century or two. Now Israel's enemy is Rome. And once again, many people in Israel were prepared to compromise with Rome, falling into idolatry just to get along. But there were some in Israel who advocated resistance, even violent resistance. They eventually came to be known. Does anybody know what the group was called? The Zealots. Somebody said it over here. The Zealots. Why? Because they had zeal. They believed they were called to fight God's enemy. They had zeal for God. And if zeal meant picking up the spear, they would pick up the spear. One of these men is a young rabbi named Saul. Saul is, is the Apostle Paul's Hebrew name. Um, Paul was his Roman name. He used the title or the name Paul when he was working in and around the Gentile world. He used Saul when he was working around the Hebrew world. But we first meet Saul in the Bible, in the book of Acts. We meet him when he is overseeing an execution. He's there at the murder of one of Jesus' early followers, a man named Stephen. You find that in Acts 7, if you want to turn to that. Acts 7, verse 60, where Stephen falls on his knees as he's being stoned. He cries out, Lord, don't hold this against them. And then when he had said this, he fell asleep. That is, he died. And there in the background, it says in chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of the killing of him. Why? Because Saul had zeal, like Phineas, like Judas the hammer. He believed that those who disagreed with him would mislead Israel. They should be stopped by any means possible, even if that involved imprisonment, violence, or execution. Listen to how Saul describes himself in those early days. He says, this is Philippians 3, verses 5 and 6. He says, as for me, I was circumcised on the eighth day part of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And in regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. And as for zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. That's why he says this. As for righteousness, based on the law, I was faultless. That's what zeal looked like to Paul. Zeal for God was the courageous willingness to do anything to fight God's enemies, to stop them. 
He says this to the church in Galatia. This is Galatians 1, 13 and 14. He said, For you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Why? Because I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. There's that word again. Paul didn't just have zeal. He had extreme zeal, like Phineas, like Judah. And then something happened to Saul. Something that would change his life. Something that would change the trajectory of history. Something that would completely reverse the way that Saul or followers of Jesus should regard or think about or live with people of other faiths. It happens in chapter 9. That's the section that Nicole read. And let me invite you to turn with me to chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul as he was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, went to the high priest, asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. Why? So that if he found there anybody who belonged to the way, that's what Jesus' followers were called, people of the way. If he found there any of those who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Saul's mind is filled with zeal. His heart beats with zealous conviction. He's on a mission for God. It's a dangerous mission. It's a violent mission. And then suddenly what happens? A light from heaven flashes all around him. You know, it's given to some human beings, not many, to have a profound experience of the God of transcendent reality. An experience that is so shattering that it changes them forever. It brings them to sobriety. It it turns them around completely. And, And so it comes here to Saul. He falls to the ground. This is the moment. This is the moment maybe he's waited for his whole life. Maybe he thinks like Moses, he's going to see the glory of the Lord and he's going to be rewarded for his zeal. His heart must have been pounding. But then something utterly unexpected happens. He's not commended by the Lord for his zeal. He's rebuked for it. He's condemned for it. And all of this comes in the form of a question that he couldn't have imagined. He falls to the ground. There's this light from heaven heaven all around him. And then comes the question, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? What does that mean? mean, Saul was doing the work of God. He's a hero of Israel. Who are you? Saul asks. And there's a moment of silence. And Saul doesn't know it, but, but this is the end of his old life. That's all about to die. The end of his old life, the beginning of a new one. Who are you? I am Jesus. The voice responds. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Every time you threaten, every time you harm, every time you kill a little one, a brother, a sister who follows me, you persecute me. Now get up and you'll be told what to do. I am Jesus. Sometimes it comes to people. 
In one moment, all of his dreams are shattered. In one moment, all of his dreams are fulfilled. But in a way that he never could have imagined, he finds himself now face to face with the crucified one. People sometimes speak of the conversion of Saul, but that's not quite right. He didn't for a second cease to believe in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah. He didn't cease for a moment to revere Moses or love the law, or revere the prophet. But this just happens to people sometimes. Everything got turned upside down. He didn't turn his back on the Lord that he knew. He turned his face toward Jesus. He found Jesus, or actually, more appropriately, Jesus found him. He had been absolutely right to be zealous for God, but he had been tragically wrong about what zeal should look like. And he was completely correct that God was at work in the world and wanted people to be at work in the world on his behalf. But he was horribly misguided, as I think we all can get, about what God's work looks like until he sees the crucified one. I'm Jesus. I'm the one who you are persecuting. Saul is quite literally blinded by the reality. You see, in Jesus, supremely in Jesus, in Jesus on the cross, in the persecuted Jesus, Saul finally sees the zeal that God requires. Not the zeal to kill your enemies, but to sacrifice on their behalf. Not the zeal to persecute your enemies, but the willingness even to suffer persecution in order to help them. The zeal that God is looking for, the zeal to love, to forgive, to embrace, to identify with and understand, to break down barriers, to realize in repentance that those that we thought were enemies of God are in fact beloved by God, the creations of God. So how is it that that we, you and I, the church, followers of Jesus, think about, feel about, relate to people of other faiths? How do we share truth, but do it in a way that communicates love? Well, let's read through the story of Saul just a little bit further. Saul's now blind. He's, He's led into a home in Damascus where for three days he fasts and he prays. Meanwhile, God comes in a vision to a disciple of Jesus, another follower of Jesus named Ananias. This again is Acts 9. We're in verse 10. God says, Ananias, I want you to go to this particular house and I want you to find a man from Tarsus, a man named Saul, and pray for him. Pray that his sight is restored. And Ananias says, Lord, Lord, thou hast many good ideas, Lord, But this ain't one of them. You've probably not heard what with thou being busy in running all the universe and thy other business, but but this man Saul is not what you would call a safe person. The Lord speaks. And he says to Ananias, just go. Just go. This man is my chosen instrument. I will use him to proclaim my name to the Gentiles 
and to their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he will suffer for my name. And Ananias goes. By the way, one of the the side conversations in this story is that when God calls you to do something, just because you don't feel at peace about it doesn't mean you're off the hook. I sometimes find that, don't you too, that, that people will be asked to do something and say, listen, I just don't have peace about that. Sometimes it's the agitation of God that gets us out of our chairs to do what God is asking. Peace often lies on the other side of obedience, not on this side. Anyway, Ananias goes to the door. He asks for Saul, Saul the killer, Saul the persecutor. He asks for this Saul. He's a follower of Jesus, and now he's coming into the face of the one who had threatened and killed his own people. Saul's brought to the door. Sure enough, he is blind. Ananias, who may well have been one of the disciples from Jerusalem, who had to escape and run for his life because of Saul's persecution, who may well have had loved ones imprisoned or executed because of their faith under Saul's watch. Ananias speaks and he says, Oh, Saul, you are in such trouble now. God will make you suffer many things. He told me so. Now, Ananias enters the house. There is, there is just a spiritual reality at work here that we have to acknowledge. It says, Ananias went into the house of his enemy, entered it, and he placed his hands on Saul and said, and hear this, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Anthropologists have this wonderful phrase for this. They talk about what they call fictive kinship groups. People who are not your biological family, but to become part of your family, your, your relational family, your honorary family. Followers of Jesus were to treat people who were religiously different from them, even who persecuted them, by placing their hands on them and saying, Brother Saul, what kind of movement is this? What kind of people are these? Well, as a matter of historical record, whatever else you may think of Saul, nobody would ever extend that fictive kinship more radically, more exclusively, more promiscuously than Saul, whose favorite language for other human beings was brother and sister. And became a student in his life of how Jesus related to people who differed religiously. Here was one example. In Luke 9, Jesus and his disciples are going through a Samaritan village. Now, if you know anything about the history of Jews and Samaritans, you know that not only did they not get along, they just flat out hated each other. This was a division that was right along religious and cultural lines. Think Arabs and Jews in modern day Israel. That's what it was like. And as they were traveling through Samaria, the people didn't welcome Jesus as disciples. So the disciples asked Jesus, said, Master, 
Should we call down fire from heaven and wipe them out? We have zeal. Absolutely we do. And the text says that, that Jesus rebuked his disciples, not the Samaritans. The exact same pattern that we see later with Saul. He wasn't commended for his zeal either. He was rebuked for it. As you track with Jesus on his ministry, you see that he served and cared for and touched and healed people of lots of other religious groups. Pagan Canaanites, Roman centurions, Samaritans. He did it the same way he loved and cared for his own people. It's as if Jesus thinks that that his presence, his healing, his message had a way of climbing over the boundaries of merely human constructs like religion. It's as if he knows that if somebody wants him and responds to him and just listens to him and follows him, that God can take care of all the rest. And so it was. But in the end, when people hated him, Jesus didn't take up a spear in his own hands. He wound up taking a spear thrust into his own side. He wouldn't be like Phineas or Judas the hammer. No, this this is what zeal would look like. And once Paul met this Jesus, this spear-pierced, crucified, resurrected Messiah, he could never think about zeal in the same way. That's why later on, when he would talk about other people in Israel, his old zealot colleagues involved in the old zeal movements, he said this to them, Romans 10, verse 2, For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal, their zeal is not based on knowledge. Religious zeal not based on knowledge is absolutely dangerous. We see it in the world today. We've seen it throughout the history of the church. We see it in contemporary religious conflicts that really are tearing our world apart. The belief that somehow killing the act, the enemies of God is an act of service to God. That zeal is not based on knowledge. But if we're honest, I think we need to say that zeal is not just out there. It's there whenever we harbor those feelings of judgment or superiority or hatred or apathy when we have that coldness going on in our own hearts. What does zeal based on knowledge look like? This new kind of zeal that Paul receives from Jesus? It's the exact opposite of what he used to think. Listen to what he wrote to the church at Rome. This is Romans 12 in verse 11. It says, never be lacking in zeal. That old word again. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And then he goes on, just one sentence later. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless them. Do not curse. You remember the word bless means seek God's good things for them. God's very best. That's zeal, zeal based on knowledge. Bless them, love them, care for them, sacrifice for them. Again, this is a conversation about posture. 
not about truth. I'm not saying that we abandon the truth claims of Jesus, but that we take up the example of Jesus in the way that we relate to people who may not share that truth that we believe. So very practically, in our last couple of minutes, how is it that you relate to the people in your life, in your neighborhoods, in your workplace, in your school, who differ from you religiously? As a, as a younger man, I, I used to think that devot- devotion to Jesus meant that when I met a person who was a different religion or a different background, that my job was to out-argue them. Again, I'm not suggesting there isn't a place for rational conversation, but there is a difference between trying to crush an opponent in debate, to demolish their arguments, to expose their defective belief systems. There's a difference between that and wanting to draw another person to the love of Jesus. So I'm going to suggest something, just a little bit of, a little bit of different twist on that. Don't, don't start there. You may need to get there. You absolutely will need to get there. But start the conversation on a different footing. Start by listening. Be curious. Ask questions. Want to learn. Sincerely want to know. You will find that people of different religious backgrounds don't share the Western Christian reticence to talk about what they believe. They love to talk about what they believe. Assume that you might have something to learn as they speak, and they will be ready to listen when it's time for you to speak. So I'm just going to invite every one of us to learn to listen, and to listen with love, and that is not easy. If you want a practical exercise, here's one before you leave today. I'm going to invite you to write down the name of one person in your life. Everybody knows at least one person who is religiously different from you. And start just by praying for them. Put that one name on your lips. So that instead of praying generically as we often do, God, for people who are lost and don't know you, I'm going to pray for Jim. Or I'm going to pray for... Uh, Alexandria, or I'm going to pray for Muhammad. Have a burden with a name attached to it. And then follow up that prayer with a conversation that, that in the right place starts just by asking, hey, you know what? I'd be interested to hear a little bit about your own spiritual journey. What was it like growing up in that tradition? How has it shaped your life? What is it that you believe about this or that? no pressure on this. You don't have to make a sales pitch. You don't have to worry that if you show interest in them, that somehow you're neglecting the importance of what it is that you believe. That if you don't say flat out that they're wrong, you haven't done your job right as a Christian, just care. Just be curious. There will be a time to speak. Week by week in our teachings, for those who gather with us on Sundays, one of the things we hope we're doing is giving you the words to speak when the time comes. But you're not trying to just win an argument. You're trying to love them because we believe that God loves them. Zeal, according to knowledge, means that we don't just tolerate people of other faiths. That we honor them. That we care for them. People sometimes wonder, well, 
I mean, what do Christians think happens to people of other faiths when they die? Are people who affirm other religions in danger of hell? The answer is yes, but people who believe actually in the Christian religion are in the same danger. Being right with God is not just a matter of affirming a few right beliefs. Jesus was most vivid in his condemnation of religious leaders who affirmed all the right beliefs. When it comes to other religions, the question ends up being too often, what is, what is the least amount of stuff that you have to believe in order to get into heaven? Jesus never really put it that way, and he never answers that question. I will not satisfy your curiosity about the minimum entrance requires for heaven. He just says, follow me. Come to me. Know me. Allow me to to teach you, to lead you, to sacrifice for you, to shape you. I had coffee this week with one of my good friends here at the church. Um, And Ryan and I were talking a little bit about the history of religiously motivated violence. He, He works in security, and he secures some of the most prominent religious facilities in the GTA. We were reflecting back on, on events, uh, recognizing that it wasn't that long ago that, that 11 people were shot and killed in the Tree of Life synagogue in, in an act of religiously fueled anti-Semitic hatred. A short time after, a, a machete-wielding man stabs five people celebrating Hanukkah in their home right next to a synagogue. We follow a Jewish man who was executed by a Gentile government and died asking God to forgive. So let's agree that, that we can pray for the safety of every synagogue, of every temple, of every mosque, of every follower of Jesus in danger all around the world, that this will be a place where courtesy and honor and respect and love for people of every faith will be the heartbeat of our worship and our life. And we do this, we do this not because we're doubtful about following Jesus, but because we want to follow him fully with zeal according to knowledge. let me just say as we close, following Jesus may put you on the opposite side of lots of destructive ideas and unjust practices and oppressive worldviews, many of them based in religion. But following Jesus will never place you on the opposite side of the people who believe them. Zeal according to knowledge means that you can separate the love of God for a person from the distorted religious views that they may hold. Let me pray for zeal for all of us. God, we thank you for Jesus who has a way of transcending the barriers, the the dividing walls, all these man-made constructs that 
prevent us from, from really embracing each other. And we pray, God, that every human being on this planet, those of every known faith or no faith, that they may come to know Jesus. Not, not religion, but the person of Jesus. Would you give us, God, zeal according to knowledge? The courage, the ability to love and care for and, and listen and learn and share. I pray for each one of us here, God, that, that wherever anybody is on their own spiritual journey, that every follower of Jesus would be able to enter into these relationships of love and honor with people who are different. And that you would use them to help others to come to know the love of Jesus. We pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen.